welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to this podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes and even more new content. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative enlightening, and as always, insightful. So before we get into the main event, want to remind folks who are on YouTube to please hit that red button so you can get future notifications on new episodes of both the Radical Math Talk podcast and our flagship podcast, Identity Talk for Educators Live. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcast. Uh, we also accept any donations for those who want to help us continue to build on this platform because um, that's something that people have been asking about in recent weeks. And you can do that through Cash App or Venmo. So if you're on Cash App, uh, you want to use the handle money sign ID Talk for Ed. And if you are on uh, Venmo, you want to use the handle at Kwame SM. That's K-W-A-M-E-S-M. And of course, to watch past episodes of the Radical Math Talk podcast, you can head to the website IdentityTalkForEducators.com. Thank you so much for y'all's support. And today's conversation is one that I am thoroughly excited about. Uh, when I first started this podcast and I was asking uh, my math teacher community, you know, who I should bring on as a guest, uh, today's guest was somebody whose name just kept popping up. And uh, she is somebody whose work I've had a chance to follow over the past year or so. And I'm just so intrigued by just her advocacy. I'm intrigued by just her expertise and, and just her wealth of knowledge when it comes to math, math instruction in general. Um, and we're going to be talking about this new book that she co-authored with her partner, Dr. Kendall Brown, which we call Choosing to See, a Framework for Equity in the Math Classroom. So today, y'all, we're going to be talking about equity in the math classroom a very critical topic that we don't discuss enough in our math circles. So 
I just want to get to it, y'all. I just want to get to it. Without further ado, uh, let's bring on Dr. Pamela Seda to the podcast to talk with us about choosing to see her MAV journey and how she got to where she is today um, in this journey. So let's bring Dr. Seda on. Hello. Hello. So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Um, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, a little under. I've been a little under the weather today, but you know, whenever I get to talk about math, I'm always up. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate you for taking some time to talk with us about your book and just your journey. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are just lovers of your work, and and I'm included in that. So I'm just glad to have you on this platform form to just share. Well, thank you. So on this podcast, I always like to start off with having guests share their mathography. So um, when I was in the classroom in the beginning of the school year, I love that my students share their math journey, their math autobiography, if you will, because that gives me an idea of what their relationship is with math. Um, and I think it's a, 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 it's important to, to have that done because so many of our kids come in with a fixed mindset in terms of their ability to do math. So as a way for me, the teacher, to figure out, well, what the gaps are and why do they have these, these perceptions about their math ability I like for them to just share their story because who knows the moment might have came in second grade um, when they had that teacher that was just very discouraging. It might have came at fourth grade when they failed that math test and never fully recovered from it and just had that stigma linger through the future grades. So we just never know, you know, where people go with with their stories. So I want to give you an opportunity to share your math story how you came to love math and how math has grown with you over the years to where you are now. Certainly. So as long as I can remember, math was always my favorite subject. Um, I can't ever remember a time where math wasn't my favorite subject. Now um, in school, my teachers were very traditional, um, taught in very traditional matters you know, taught the traditional procedures. But one thing I knew for me, even at a young age, was it had to make sense. And if something didn't make sense to me, firstly, of course, I would be the one, I was always the one that raised my hand. And oftentimes the teacher would just repeat the traditional algorithm that maybe didn't make sense to me. And so I would study and I would look at it and I would make up stories or something so that it would make sense to me because I couldn't do math that didn't make sense to me. And um, I think that carried with me um, when I became a teacher because a lot of those topics that I had to teach that didn't make sense to me as a student, I had created stories to make them make sense and I passed those stories on to my, my students. Um, but math wasn't always easy. Uh, I guess, fortunately for me, math K-12 was pretty easy. But when I got to college, I started out engineering. 
um, I struggled. I remember having a time where I would be in class and I would be with the professor for the first five minutes. And then after that, I was lost. I would just not know what was going on. I took notes. I copied everything down. And then I went to, I took those notes to an upperclassman. And I'd say, hey, here's these notes. I understood this first part, but I don't understand the rest. Can you help me? And they did. And that was pretty much how I, I, I made it through my college math classes was, was that I didn't, I wasn't afraid to ask for help. And I think fortunately for me, my math identity had really been set already that I was a good student. My teachers made me feel, they validated me. They made me feel smart. They, um, my interactions with my teachers were always were um, positive. And so when I started to struggle, I never thought, oh, what's wrong with me? My first question was, who do I ask for help? Who can help me? And um, I, I then began to realize that everybody didn't have that attitude. I, re I remember being in a math class and most of us, most of the people were failing. I wasn't failing. I think I had a C. It wasn't the grade I wanted, but I had a C in the class. And I remember asking my classmates who were failing, well, have you, did you go to the professor? Did you talk with the professor? Did you get help? And they were like, oh, no. And I was, I remembered going to the professor during office hours and he would practically give me the test. He would say things like, well, do you know this? Do you know A, B, and C? And do you know D, E, and F? And then I'd see those things on the test. And that's one thing that made me realize how important um, identity was, that these were people who were math majors who were sitting in math classes, and they still were afraid to ask for help. Um, but for me, asking for help was never something that I saw as a bad thing. It was just, I was just determined for things to make sense to me. And that, I think for me that, that um, I kind of have this bulldog tenacity about things making sense, that that's what pushed me. And that's what motivated me to continue to learn math. Wow. I feel like your journey sounds very similar to mine. Um, because when I was growing up, my K to 12 teachers also taught math traditionally, you know, it was very prescriptive uh, where they would just hand you the formulas, hand you the algorithms, you apply them, you plug numbers in, you're able to spit out your solutions. There was really no opportunities for critical thinking. So that was pretty much my K-12 experience. And I believe that when I got to college and I was a math major all throughout my undergrad, I struggled in math because I didn't have a strong enough foundation. Everything that I had done up until that point was very much procedural in terms of just step by step, follow the formula, you get the answer. But then when it started, but then when I started to do more theoretical classes, which focused on conjectures and theories, and it was more abstract, that was a very foreign concept to me. And I was just like you, trying to go to office hours to see the professor, uh, trying to befriend classmates to just get some tutoring help. And, and that's 
ultimately how I was able to get through college, but it was hard. And I think for me, it got to a point where I started to lose confidence in my ability as a math learner because I'm thinking to myself, how did I get from, you know, getting all A's to now being a straight C student? So I'm wondering when you were going through your undergrad, taking the different math classes, do you believe that your struggles had more to do with the foundation or lack thereof during your K-12 experience, or was it something else that attributed to that? Well, I think anytime you learn something new, when you do something for the first time, you're not going to do it right or well. I mean, anything, right. I don't care what it is. And so, you know, college is the first time that I'm having to do theoretical proofs. Now, I did do algebraic proofs in high school. I remember in Algebra 2, doing those two-column proofs with algebra. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I wish I had done proofs algebraically first before I had to do those geometric ones. Um, because I, re I remember in geometry, I was like a deer in headlights with those geometric proofs. I was like, how did they know? I struggled for a couple of weeks, but then the light bulb came on and I figured it out. Um, so the, the you know process of doing that linear logic and reasoning was not foreign to me. But um, yeah, college is the first time I had to do abstract proofs. And, and um, so I didn't see it as something, I never saw it as something that was wrong with me. It was like, this is new. And when you do something for the first time, you're, you're not gonna do it well. But for me, it was just um, just that determination to figure it out. I just problem solving is just something that I just see as a part of life. And I just saw that as a problem that I just had to figure it out. And I'm going to be honest, some of those classes, those abstract classes, I just memorized well enough to get a grade and get out the class <laughs> because of how it was taught. And I, mm. I, was I figured the system out. I figured out how to regurgitate things because I had been doing that K-12 and some of the classes were that way. I think that's pretty much what I did too. And it just goes back to the whole argument of schooling versus education, right? right. Just being able to navigate different systems. So for me, I knew that if I raised my hand enough times in class, um, if I forged a good enough relationship with my professor, if I visited his office hours enough to show that I was invested in the class, maybe he'll curve the exam. Maybe he'll curve the midterm so that I don't have to withdraw from the class and have to take it again in another semester. So these were some of the things that were going through my mind. But I was actually reading through um, your story in the book and you were talking about your time at uh, Georgia Tech when you're doing your undergrad. And I'm, I'm just wondering, when you were attending your classes there, was it a case where in those classes you were like one of the only black people in the class? Because I know that was the case for me when I was doing undergrad and I felt like I had well, to yeah, and prove at Georgia myself Tech, and do I was more. not only one of the few black students, I was one of the few black females. <laughs> like I'd be the only one. Um, but mm -hmm. I chose to use that at yeah. my as, wow. advantage. You know, if you're in a lecture hall and there's a couple hundred people in there, um, I made sure I sat in the front, in the middle, and the professor knew my name. 
They may not know everybody's name in there, but I made sure that they knew my name. <laughs> I chose to I chose to use it um, as an advantage and kind of like you, it was like, so when it was time for them to give out grades, they will remember they'll, oh yeah, that was the person in there who was always asking all those questions mm. and showed up at office hours. <laughs> but what yes. concerns me about that whole experience is the fact that, remember I was telling you about how I was in a class and I was making a C and other people were failing. And these were, yes. most of them were future math teachers. And what so concerned me and part of the reason I wrote this book is what did our schooling do to these students' sense of identity to where they were so afraid to even ask for help? Like they're failing and they still won't ask for help. Like I, I, I'm just trying to figure out why do we have a school schooling system that makes people feel like asking for help means something's wrong with you or struggle is is that you're dumb like those are mm -hmm. the messages that people get all the time in our traditional schooling processes that are um they're they're not true but we that because of how students experience our math classes that's what they've come to believe and I think that's part of what we have to disrupt. All right. And I think that's an interesting point because you had mentioned the fact that you were one of those students growing up who was curious. So you asked questions. You were very inquisitive. And, yeah, and I, got, I got lots of side eyes. Even in grad school, I got lots of side eyes for all the questions I asked. <laughs> but I think... You were an outlier at that time because if you were in my class, my classmates probably would have given you the side eye too because during that time, our teachers took a very paternalistic approach um, to math education to where it's like, listen, I need you to listen to what I'm doing on the board. This is the way you need to do this. So going back to the prescriptive methods and if you don't do it this way, it's wrong, right? Right. But if the goal, if the goal for us is to get our students to build agency in their learning, you know, taking ownership for their learning, and this is what you talk about, we, you know, with the ICU care framework, you talk about the importance of having students um, just take ownership. But that requires you as a teacher to not be as paternalistic, but you have to relinquish some control in order for yeah, them to have the opportunities. This is the thing. Our students have agency. They do have agency. Okay. They can use that agency to learn math or they can use that agency not to learn math mm -hmm. because of how we set up our classrooms. They have agency. And there are some students who use that agency and make a choice not to learn it because in their mind, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the hit to their self-esteem. It's not worth the hit to their psyche. So they make choices not to learn it and not put forth the effort. Mm. And then we wonder as teachers, we put all the blame on them as if our practices and the experiences in the classroom didn't contribute to that. Our students have agency. The question is, are we going to create a classroom so that they use that agency to learn math? 
that and part. how they experience our how they experience the math in our class is going to determine that. And I think that's what we have to do. And I look back at even my own preparation as a teacher, um, going back to my grad school days when I was just trying to go through the classes, you know, just to pass my praxis test to get licensure, you know. Right. I don't remember having a lot of classes where there was a major focus on culturally relevant pedagogy. I do remember taking classes focused on educational psychology, um, educational theory, and then the the basics like, you know, classroom management, lesson planning, you know, things like that. So this is kind of going into the next portion where we're going to have you show your work, right? So we start off with the math story. Now we want you to show your work. Now, of course, as math teachers, this is one of our favorite phrases to say. We have students coming to us with their, with their work, and they may be just showing us solutions, but we're looking for evidence. How did you get to this solution? I need to see your thinking, so I need you to show your work. It's something that kids hate to hear us say, but we'll say it to our faces blue. Uh, so in this context, when we say show your work, it's really about receipts. And I know for you, Dr. Seda, you have a lot of receipts, um, this book being one of them, but just your experience, you know, being in the classroom, but also observing other math practitioners um, in practice uh, doing this work. So I want to know from you, just thinking about how we are trained as teachers, what measures do you think universities and colleges need to take in order to support pre-service math teachers in developing more culturally responsive and anti-racist practices? So it's interesting because this is one of the things that came out of my dissertation research. Um, I think the, the, the best measure that needs to be taken is those who are involved in teacher preparation, they need to practice what they preach, bottom line. More is caught than taught. And one of the things that came out of my dissertation research was because I actually used these ICU care principles in my dissertation. And I was looking at which of these principles are student teachers able to implement easier and which ones do they have difficulty implementing it. And it was no surprise that the, the principles that were difficult for the student teachers to implement were the principles that weren't modeled for them in their program. And um, when it comes to leadership, whether it's in higher ed leadership or administrative leadership, teachers know whether you believe in um, what you're telling them. And these days of uh, do as I say, not as I do, those days are over. It, it, it has never worked to begin with. But so that's what I would say first, which means um, teacher educators they need to practice the work. They need to do the work. When I say include others as experts, do they include their teachers as experts? Do they see them? It's not them. It's not just about them saying, teachers, you need to help include others as experts in your classrooms. As teacher educators, you need to look at the expertise of your student teachers or those who are in your program and 
get them involved in using their expertise. It means understanding your students well. It means releasing control. It, it means that I think first, you have to practice what you preach. You have to become, you have to really believe in these principles and you have to practice them. And then engage your um, participants, your pre-service and in-service teachers in those conversations about, okay, how do I support you? And I, I think we can't assume that we know how to support teachers in these unless we ask them in their circumstances, in their um, settings, we ask them, how can I support you implement this? Um, that's what I think really needs to happen. And, and I see, especially now with culturally relevant pedagogy and equity being, you know, popular words now in the lexicon, there's a lot of people out here talking it, but not a lot of people walking it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, and just thinking about implementing culture responsive practices in the math classroom I'm, I'm just thinking about even the test that we have to take right i think a lot of what we do in our training is pretty much tied to the licensure test i mean you don't really see yeah. a lot of questions focused on that very topic yeah and the thing that i remember even both my undergraduate and my graduate program, my bachelor's and my master's, what used to be so frustrating to me was I would go to my math methods classes and they would say, here are the best practices. And then I would take my math classes and they're modeling the opposite, exact opposite of everything they said should be happening in a math class. And then somehow we expect teachers to then go and teach math that are utterly different from ways that they've been taught. And I and I, I understand the math department, math departments in higher ed are some of the last ones to change, but um, it goes back to you, you, teachers are going to teach the way they were taught. We have to change. If we really want teachers to practice differently, higher ed has to practice differently how they teach them. We have to teach math in fundamentally different ways, and it has to start in college. Colleges have to change. Yeah, that's that's a huge order. That's a huge order right there, because when we say colleges have to change, we have to look at the academy, right? Yes. And the politics that, that come with that. Now, I'm not someone who's in the academy, but as someone who's interviewed a lot of people, who are trying to get tenure at their respective universities and they're trying to be more progressive in their approach to instruction and interacting with students. Um, I know it's something that's a daunting task uh, with the right. university. See, this is the thing. We put all that on the shoulders of our teachers. Mm. And so what we do is we release them from these programs. We send them into classrooms and we say, we give them a daunting task. The daunting task we give our teachers is to teach in culturally responsive way to meet the needs of all of our students. You have these diverse needs of students, um, 
But we've never modeled that for you. You don't know what that looks like, but we need you to do it anyway. And it's not fair. It's just not fair to put this burden. I don't know of any other profession that expects people to learn on their own on the job, pretty much. Like, I'm thinking about, like, even if you go to work at Disney World, you get on-the-job training. Somebody mentors you and shows you while they're paying you, right, Yeah. how to do the job. Yeah, I, I remember I started out in engineering, and there was somebody to train me to show me the work. But it, for some reason in education, we expect the teacher education programs to do all the work, and then, then when they get on the job, that they don't have any responsibility. And that's just not, that's just not how it works. Right. And I think that's a huge issue because it's all about just mass producing teachers just to fill up classrooms. That's how it feels. That's why I know it it does feel that way. Yeah. And when you were talking about, you know, best practices, I'm wondering best practices for whom? And I think that goes back to the importance of having that culturally relevant lens when we're looking at best practices. You can't possibly know what best practices are if you don't even know how your students learn math. So this is what I'm thinking. There's some best practices we know about learning. One of those best practices has to do with building on prior knowledge, right? And making connections. That's how our brains work. All of our brains work in that regard, that you make connections. Sense making and making connections. That's how all of our brains work. But because we have different prior knowledge, culture definitely um, is a, what's the word I call it? It's a C for all that knowledge. So you can't connect to students' prior knowledge if you if you have no idea what their culture references are, how can you connect? So yeah, connecting to prior knowledge is a best practice. That's universal. But how you connect to prior knowledge, how do you know what that prior knowledge that you need to connect to, that's very culturally situated. And I think in saying that, it, it reinforces the idea that the way we teach is an art form there's no one way to do it and it's depend upon the students that you're in front of right you know i see it as problem solving to yeah. me teaching is one big problem to solve and when you're doing problem solving you have to one understand what's going on right and then two is you got to make sure that all the conditions are met so before you implement a solution you have to take into consideration all the conditions that need to be met with your solution. That's what teaching to me is, mm-hmm. is you have to understand your students. What are, the, what are the obstacles? What are all the things that are at play that are at work in helping you kids learn? And trust me, it's more than just the standards. There are so many other things that are in operation that teachers have to be aware of. And when we talk about standards, I know with most of our country, you know, here in America, a lot of us use some iteration of the Common Core curriculum. And 
I mean, this is another conversation for another day, but I know that there are people who have some reservations about Common Core, and there's some who are in favor of it. Um, but I think ultimately it goes back to, number one, having the, the content knowledge. Do you actually know the math? <laughs> I think that's number one. But then, but how will you two, know the math if you haven't had the opportunity to learn the math in a safe space? That that part as well. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other part um, that we have to take into consideration. But now I'm I'm wondering, as you were developing the ICU care framework, even before you got to this revelation. Did you have to go through your own paradigm shift in I terms of me, how you, yeah. I think for me, it was just a gradual, I was learning from my students. I wanted to be the best teacher I could be. And, you know, I tell a story in the book about how at the end of my first year teaching, I did a survey and I got feedback from students and there are things that I learned. Uh, it, it, it just was a learning trajectory to journey and I'm still on that journey. I'm still learning. My students are my best teachers. They teach me how to be better. Anytime that I'm not meeting the need of a kid, then I know it's an opportunity for me to grow and learn. So I don't, I can't say there was just one epiphany. It was just a constant me trying to improve and me trying to be better. Every class of students was another opportunity for me to be better, to be better. And I would have um, successes along the way, and I would have failures along the way. But even with the failures, I'd like to, I'd like to learn from them and do better. And I, um, I think that's one of the things that makes my book powerful is I share my mess ups <laughs> as well as my successes and everything in between. Mm. And I think that's so imperative because when you read a lot of books, you only see you only see the finished products right you only see like the good things that happen and almost seem it, it sounds like the person's coming from a place of authority like i know it all if you just read this this is how it's going to go down in your classroom so for you to be that transparent about your journey and the ups and downs of it it's going to get a lot of teachers to see that hey you're not going to get this right away it's, it's going to take some time there's a learning curve that's involved but you can learn some of my lessons and you can start at a different place <laughs> i've been at this for a yeah. while so I, I i hope that you can learn from some of my mistakes and then you can do and make your own mistakes <laughs> you don't have to make some of Abs mine absolutely <laughs> absolutely but i do want to shift to the book so choosing to see so you and uh, Dr. Kendall Brown, you, you all co-authored this book. So just tell me, how long did it take to write the book? And as you were writing the book, what were some revelations that you both had in this process? And I'm sure there were many. Okay, so how long? There's the short answer and the long answer. The, sh the short answer is from the time we signed our contract to when we had to turn in our first draft, that was seven months, seven month period of time from the time we signed our contract, turn in the first draft. Um, but as far as 
from when we first started working together on the book and we used to call it the equity book because we didn't have a name for it it was probably a period of four years um mm. we had been approached to write the book by a publisher and um they kept stringing us along and we kept having meetings with them and they seemed to be interested but we never got a contract and finally we we're like let's go shopping <laughs> And so that's how we ended up with the with Dave Burgess Publishing, um, who actually published our book. And um, you know, they they jumped right on top of it. And so when we we submitted our first draft um, in July 2020, and that was in the middle middle of the uh, pandemic, middle of whenever the whole world had kind of shut down, and so that kind of really gave us some time to write. And um, and then it took us a couple of months to do revisions. And uh, so that's that's pretty much once we decided we had a contract, we were focused, we, we got the book done. Um, some of the revelations, oh my. Um, I think a, a lot of those revelations just came in writing those stories. As we started writing our personal stories and reflecting, we were just like, oh wow, I hadn't, hadn't it was just in the chance of writing that I then began to connect a lot of our experiences with the framework we were able to see whereas when we're in the midst of it we might not necessarily have seen the connection we're just like oh we're just trying to figure things out trying to survive as so many teachers are doing but when we had that time to actually get away from it and reflect um, then we saw a lot of connections um, to the framework and um, Kendall and I were really good sounding boards for each other. You know, we would um, have common epiphanies. We would argue, we'd fuss and fight. It was just, it was, it was like all those emotions. And it was great because we really pushed each other and challenged each other, um, challenged our ideas. And I think that whole process helped us really crystallize um, to where we had the product that we did. And then our editors were great as well. Um, we really wanted this to be a teacher-friendly book. And while I know that a lot of colleges are using it for their methods classes, um, we didn't want to turn it into a methods book. We really wanted it to be to teachers. And so in that, we had to kind of tone down some of the academic language. <laughs> and our editors really helped us with that. Yeah, I mean, I see just from scanning it, and y'all, I just got it today, so I just scanned through, and I see that it's very accessible, really easy to read, um, not a whole lot of academic jargon, which is always great, but I think I'm interested in the fact that you are very intentional and calling ICU care a framework. Because I think right. when we call it a framework, it reinforces the idea that, hey, this is not just a checklist. This is just a frame of reference, right? It's a lens. And kind of it's that's why we purposely use that choosing to see, right? It's how do you see things? And right. what I realized is it, it helps you see it helps you make decisions in your classroom 
as math teachers, we all have to make all the time, but it gives you that framework to which to see how to make those, how do you go about making those decisions? It's not prescriptive. I didn't want it to be like what we are telling teachers not to do. Didn't want it to be prescriptive because we know that doesn't work. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking about how, so some of the epiphanies that came to me were like, I've always, as long as I can remember, I use cooperative learning groups. I've, I've loved Kagan cooperative learning strategies, but it, but it wasn't until I started looking at some of the strategies that I use in terms of the lens like that. Okay. That's why this works because I'm including others as experts. And not only, mm. not only that, I use the thing to say, well, how can I use this, this strategy, like find one, someone who to lift up my lower status students. Like it's thinking that way. And I would have never thought about doing those things if it hadn't been for the framework to make me think about this is important to do. You know, I have, uh, there are low status students in class there who are perceived as not as intelligent or not as valuable in the classroom. Am I paying attention to that? And, and once I notice it, how can I use these strategies to help elevate that? Like I would have never thought about doing that before. Um, if I hadn't had this framework with which to think about how to, how do I implement these strategies? We have these tasks. Um, we've known for a long time that how teachers implement tasks is way more important than just the tasks themselves. We do want kids engaging with the math. We want something that's cognitively demanding, but how are you doing it? Are you doing it in a way that preserves and creates and strengthens their math identity? Or are you doing it in a way that undermines that math identity? So the framework helps you think about how do you implement this in ways that help uncover the brilliance of all kids. Yes. And I just realized we've been talking about the framework, but for those who are not familiar with the ICU care framework, I think this will be a great time to just briefly um, touch on what it is as far as the acronym and we've already been talking about how it manifests itself in the classroom, but if we could just break down what each of the letters stand for so the audience just has some clarity around that. Certainly. Okay, so the I is include others as experts. The first C is be critically conscious. U is understand your students well. C is use culturally relevant curricula. A is assess, activate, and build on prior knowledge. R is release control, and E is expect more. And when you look at all these principles separately, you'll realize they really do interact with each other. So let's say we're talking about using culturally relevant curriculum. The way I've defined it is helping your students see themselves as doers of math and to overcome those negative messages about who is and who isn't mathematically smart. So it has to do with representation, but you can't do that. You can't engage in that practice if you don't understand your students well. If you haven't taken the time to understand who they are, what they think about themselves, um, what they're passionate about, then it's very hard for you to select tasks or create tasks that are going to be relevant to them if you don't know, if you haven't taken the time to understand them. Um, it's also going to rely, rely, help 
you to release control. You have to release control to be able to do that because you may not be familiar with the cultures that your students bring with you. Um, as I, I, I remember sharing um, in a conference last week, we've always had culturally relevant pedagogy. The question is culturally relevant to whom? And most of the time it's been relevant to the teacher. And if, the te if your students share your cultural values and they're um, synchronized, then generally they're success. But if you don't understand the culture of your students and with this very diverse um, country that we have right now, there's oftentimes you won't share the same cultural values that your students do. And so therefore that means there's some studying you have to do. So I see you care, all those principles do really work together. Um, so that's why, once again, I say it's a framework, as you were saying, it's a way to think about your instruction and think about how to put all the pieces together. Yeah, and I can see the interconnectedness of all the different components of the framework. Like, and as I was, you know, looking through it, you know, I was really honing in on the E, expecting more. So when I see expecting more, I'm thinking, we have to maintain high expectations for students. And I think so often, um, especially in my own experience, a lot of expectations are tied to race. So I actually um, read a publication from, I believe it was Dr. Danny Martin, where he was actually talking about just the, the different perceptions of mathematical ability based on race, where you have Absolutely. the hierarchy. Pretty much, if you're a Caucasian, if you are Asian, you're usually at the top of the hierarchy in terms of math ability. And then if you're black and brown, you're all the way down, <laughs> you and, know, in that hierarchy. And we can't be in denial. Those stereotypes are out there, whether we want to acknowledge yes. them or not. And I think our responsible responsibility as teachers, it, this is not a messiah complex. This is not coming in here to rescue our kids. What it is mm -hmm. is... How do I how do I empower my students? You're empowering your students to overcome those stereotypes. You can't do that if you're not willing to recognize that those stereotypes exist. And then you create experiences in your classrooms that help your students overcome those stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that deficit thinking, you know, that prevents us from releasing control, but also prevents mm -hmm. us from including our students as experts because we're already coming in with the perception that they're incapable right. of being competent in math. So that's where the interconnectedness comes in and you can't silo these different components of the framework. They all just work together. Yes, right. You can't release control mm -hmm if you don't have high expectations of your students. Otherwise, you'll just end up with a chaotic class, right? It's not about watering down anything because you say, oh, my poor kids, they came from these struggling backgrounds. I'm just going to let them. And that's, that's what a lot of people perceive that we're advocating. No, it's being that warm demander. It is being warm. There's no reason for us to constantly make people feel dumb and stupid when they ask questions or they don't understand. But it is, it is that demander as well, those two go together, that you're demanding that, that they rise up. And generally when you hold the bar high 
and provide the support, kids will will rise with you, especially if you have a relationship with them. There are so many kids, and I think about things that I used to do myself. I used to run cross country and track, and um, I I remember running distances that I never thought that I could run because of my girls that was with me. You know, I'd run through the pain. I would run through the stitches in my side because I didn't want somebody to have to wait for me and walk back with me because I knew they would if I stopped. And I know that a lot of people are that way, that because of the relationship, they'll push themselves further than they would necessarily if they're just asked to do things on their own. That's why relationships and understanding your students well is so important. And and these are all the things that we know are important. But I'm just thinking about even my own career as a math teacher. And when I started, when I came into the game, it was right in the midst of the no child left behind era. Right. So from, I think it came in 20, 2010 is when I had my first year as a full-time teacher. And so my whole mindset was always, Got to get these kids ready for April, April, May. That was a Super Bowl state testing, right. Right? right? And my school leaders, my administrators were so pressed on having um, students do the benchmark testing. So we'd, we'd have quarterly benchmark assessments just to see where students are. And of course, working in the district, you also have a scope of sequence that they expect you to follow. Now, did I always follow it to the T? No, because I just didn't believe in that, especially when I was in the classroom where it was an an inclusion classroom with students who had IEPs, students who had 504 plans. Um, I had students who were emerging bilinguals, so they were still learning English as a second language. Had all this going on, there's no way that I could follow the scope is sequence and, and the pacing to a T. I had to adjust the pacing to accommodate and differentiate my instruction. But when you do that, you now are falling behind with the pacing that the district expects you <laughs> to follow. And then that sometimes reflects on the results on these assessments, which hold, which are high stakes for a lot of these schools. And I feel like a lot of teachers like myself had to deal with that dilemma of trying to follow the mandates as best as we could of the district while at the same time doing what's best for students. So right. my question my question for you is, do you believe that high-stakes standardized testing has deterred a lot of our math teachers from creating more opportunities for our learners to to really tap into that agency that we've been talking about and to have ownership of their learning? Well, I definitely think the pressures of high stakes testing has been a negative and has created a lot of stress for both students as well as teachers. But having said that, just like I said, students have agency. They can use that agency to learn math or not. Teachers have agency too. And one of the things I've come to learn is we've had enough years of people not passing these tests year after year after year. And guess what? The sky didn't fall in. 
And what I've come to understand is that we've been focusing on the wrong thing. We've been focusing on what we call these foundational skills, right? Making sure that the kids, these are the standards, make sure the kids know how to add, subtract, multiply and divide with whole numbers and fractions and this laundry list of math skills and we call those foundational. But one of the things I do in a lot of my presentations I talk about in the book, I call doing mathematics is noticing, describing and generalizing patterns. Those are the foundational skills. Um, our brains are hardwired to notice patterns. So if we can teach students how to describe those patterns, how to generalize those patterns, then they have the skills that they need to learn all that stuff. They can figure out a lot of that stuff. But when our focus becomes whatever's on the pacing guide and the standards and not the skills on how to figure things out, um, you know, we've had lots and lots and lots of researchers that that's just not, the brain is doesn't work that way. The brain doesn't um, work with just because you repeat things over and over again. That only puts things into short term memory. It doesn't put anything in the long term memory. Sense making and making connections is what puts things into long term memory. And um, so if we help kids learn how to notice, generalize, describe patterns, teach them how to figure things out, they'll do so much better on those tests. But the key is they'll have it for long term. They'll have something that lasts beyond that test for the next year. And I often really wonder about the ethics behind teaching students in a way they'll give high test scores but sacrifices their mathematical identity and sacrifices their ability to learn the mathematics in the future. And I honestly, unfortunately, believe that a lot of the practices that we've been engaging, engaging in to raise test scores has been at the cost of our students' identity and at the cost of them getting the conceptual foundation that they need to learn further mathematics. And I think that is the reason why so many of our young people, when they get into the secondary level, so I was a middle school math teacher, so I had a lot of students who were coming in many grades behind where they should be in terms of just their math levels. And a lot of it goes back to the point that you just made about the inability to notice, describe, and generalize patterns. And I couldn't help but think back to how we were taught math. It was all root memorization. If you had to get timetables, they just told you just memorize the timetables. Um, and that's how I learned math. And I'm going to assume that that's how you learn math as well. But of course, once we became teachers, we realized that's not the best way to go about doing it. And I think what's happened is we have so many students who've been caught up over depending, having this over dependence on memorizing algorithms, memorizing right. patterns, memorizing formulas that they haven't developed the ability to understand the interconnectedness of the concepts they're learning because that right. really should be mimicking driving. versus actually thinking we've had right. kids mimicking procedures and we've we've confused that and made that make us to think that they're actually thinking and those are not the same and i think that's that's kind of where we are with that like uh just as an example if we're learning about 
we're, if we're learning about, let's say, integers, that's always a struggle for students, especially when we talk about right. the different rules of integers, whether we're right. like adding and subtracting. If students don't have an understanding of absolute value and how that works, that's going to impact their ability to understand how to subtract integers, whether they're positive or negative, how to add integers. But so often <laughs> we see, um, for instance, I've, I've been guilty of doing this. That's why I'm laughing. If, we're, if I were to teach a student to do five minus, let's say, negative five, in the beginning, I would tell them, hey, take those two minus signs in the middle and marry them to make it a plus sign. So it's five plus five. It's just 10. That gives you 10. But what I should have told them was, hey, you need to be using absolute value and maybe use the number line as a scaffold to actually see why five minus negative five is 10. But that was something that had to come with time. Right. You know, and that's one of the things days. that I realized is how powerful stories are. Because remember, I said our brain works with making connections. Yes. And storytelling helps us make those connections. And so I created stories around each of the rules and I actually created a card game that matched those stories. And I called it the Van game, V-A-N-G, verbal, algebraic, numerical, graphical. And there's a one for integer operations where if they're adding, the story is you got positron, planet positron, and you have planet negatron. And when they're from the same planet, they get together. So students understand that concept. Well, you that's absolute value, right? Doesn't yeah. matter which planet they're on. If they're if if they're both on negatron or they're both on positron, they, they just get together. But if they're from different planets, they fight each other. And then you always want to know, well, who won the fight? It was well, whoever had the most with them. That's something that makes sense to kids. They can they can reason their way through that. And when I have my kids reason their way through using the story, then they can get to the answer because that makes sense to them. If you ask them to give an answer and they just try to remember rules that don't make sense to them, they get the rules mixed up. And so that's the power behind stories. And that's how I've taught integers. And, and then I create the game, even though it is a middle school concept, I had high school students who still struggle with that. And so I created the game so that they could practice it, but practice it in a way that made sense and practice in a way that they could reason their way through to the answer. Mm. Yes, and, and it's real, the struggle's real. I Just this past year, I was teaching high school geometry and you know we're trying to do trigonometric ratios where you know we're trying to do you know some really sophisticated concepts and i had to find myself you know doing some revisions with students on integer rules you know some of the basics in order to access the grade level content so yeah you're right we talk about high school students um still needing to get that that practice on the concepts yeah well, I actually, remember. I, go ahead go ahead yeah i'm I was sorry gonna tell, tell a story i just remember a story at the beginning of the year for whatever reason they had students who had didn't have schedules and so they had them all herded in the, a room and they had different teachers on their planning period go and kind of monitor the room so the kids weren't unsupervised while they're waiting for their schedules so i i take every opportunity i can teach math 
I had this 12th grader in there, 12th grade girl. I told her the story and in about an hour's time, she knew all the interoperation rules. And as a 12th grader, that was the first time she got them. And I was thinking about what a gift that was. Now she can, for a lot of kids that just, if they don't understand the integer rules, it just means failure for every math class. Mm. And just because of those stories in an hour's time, she got it. Nice, nice. So I actually had one more question for you before we get to lightning round. And it's around language and math, right? And it also ties to assessment, assessing math knowledge. So let's just assume that a student is doing an open-ended response. Mm -hmm. And in their mm -hmm. explanation, you can see that they understand the math concept just based on how they explained it. But there is an absence of formalized language, right? So if you were assessing that student, how much are you leaning on the explanation that they provided versus the fact that they may not have used all the formal mathematical jargon, if you will? So to me, assessment is not it gives you information about what your students have learned, but it also gives you information about your instruction. So if mm -hmm. I'm looking at that, it's giving me information about my instruction, which says I haven't spent enough time developing the vocabulary of my students. So that's where I would start. And um, I don't feel like I can penalize a student for not using the academic vocabulary if I haven't done a good job of giving them those opportunities to learn that academic vocabulary, which is where a lot of us as math teachers really fall down is, you know, I do remember taking one methods class on reading mathematics, and we did deal with vocabulary a little bit in that class. But as a classroom teacher, I, I wasn't really given a lot of PL about how do you teach math vocabulary. We had to we were really much reliant upon the ELA teachers to and their paradigm of how you teach vocabulary. And what I have since then, just like I said, over the years of learning and trying to figure out what's best for kids, is it's just like math is, it has its own language. And when you learn a language, you have you, the best way to learn that language is in context, not yes. by giving a definition, is in context. So we have to create opportunities for students to want to use that language. And one of the best ways I've known to do that is um, in my warmups. And one of the things I did, I totally changed my warmups where traditionally warmups used to be a problem that the kids should already know how to do and you were just giving them practice. But um, I found that generally one of two things was happening. Either kids didn't know how to do it or they just were too lazy to do it. And they just waited for me to go over it and wrote down the answers or copied the answers off one of their classmates, which still didn't give me much information. So I started using that time to do what I call notice and wonders. I would start off with some image. Images were my favorite, but maybe I might start off with a problem that's worked out something. And I would say, what do you notice? What do you wonder about? Kind of going back to describing patterns. I have to teach my kids how to describe patterns. I don't have to teach them how to notice. I just have to give them opportunities to notice. 
right? And oftentimes teaching procedures doesn't give them opportunities to notice structures because those procedures mask the structures in the mathematics. So that's why I love visuals. Give them a visual model of whatever it is I'm talking about. What do you notice? What do you wonder? And then they're using vocabulary. And then if they don't know the vocabulary, that's where I give them the vocabulary. They might use informal vocabulary. And I said, well, when you said, you know, that triangle that has two of the same sides, that's called an isosceles triangle. And I introduce that language as, they, as they're using it. I'm supporting them in what's important to them. But they're the ones who are doing the noticing. They're describing. I help them learn the language in, in context. And um, if I do that, then they'll find it easier to be able to do it when they're being assessed. Assessment should just be should be an outgrowth of what's happening in your classroom. You should be assessing all the time. And one of the things that I I got out of um, Peter Liliadal's book, Building Thinking Classrooms, was that he said, and this was I just totally revolutionized my revolutionized my thinking. All of the learning that takes place during class and collaborative groups, why doesn't that count? Why does only the learning on a test count? Why doesn't the learning that happens in a group during the class, all the learning, all the vocabulary they're using, the stuff that they're articulating, what's happening, right. why doesn't that count? Why does it only count when it's a quiz or a test at the end of the week? And I really started thinking about that. And I said, it should count. We just have to figure out better ways of capturing it. Yeah, that's tough. Because we, we always talk about formative assessments, but we don't talk about it as something that we include in our grading scale, if you will. It's more of like right. for understanding, did you get it yet? No, not yet. All right, let's keep on going. And then we get to the summative where it's usually like an end of unit test, a project. Um, right, so we maybe send even the message like saying only it only counts. Ticket, whatever. Yeah, only the learning, only the learning that takes place that you can show on this test counts. And what message is that sending? It it just tells them that all that matters is what you do at you know on that final test. Exactly. That's all it tells them. <laughs> and that's a problem. But that's something that we'll have to to talk about more in another time because that that just opens up a can of worms right there. <laughs> but um, Dr. Seda, uh, to close us out, uh, we usually do a lightning round and this is just a chance to really just get to know you a little bit more outside the math context. Um, there are a couple of quick math questions just to you know, just see, you know, where you are with it. So uh, the first question I have is, what's the, what's your favorite math subject or even topic to teach or learn? Um, it's probably solving linear equations because I think that's such a basic skill. Um, and that's for the first time for a lot of kids, they're really dealing with it as an abstract with, you know, variables and things like that. And I think that I teach it in a way that's contextual, that kids can understand the process of undoing order of operations. 
and kind of like the whole putting your your socks on, then your shoes on, and then tying them up and why you have to reverse in that order. Um, but I think I I like teaching that because if I can get kids to conceptually understand that and reason their way through, that's a building block that all of the rest of mathematics relies on. And I, I guess it just gives me a great feeling when I know that kids can understand that conceptually without just memorizing stuff that doesn't make sense. And how about the most difficult math topic to teach or learn? Hmm. Probably everything that I took in my abstract algebra class. <laughs> um, yes. Was, was just because of I most of the uh, it was so abstract that I didn't couldn't even um, tackle it. But one of the things I remember then was talking about equivalence classes. I remember being in class and talking about equivalence classes and the way my professor explained it, I was just memorized something that they said. But then later on when I got in my doctoral um, class, I actually had a, um, it was another professor and it was actually geometry, but he was he actually had done a lot of work with middle school math teachers. That's what he used to do on the side. He spent time with middle school math teachers and he described equivalence classes like as rows, like you have kids sitting in a row and that everybody sitting in the same row is an equivalence class. And when he explained it that and he used a concrete example, all of a sudden the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, my gosh, I could have understood that so much easier if that's an example that the other teacher had given and I was like why do they have to make it so hard wow and so All right. I think that my experiences like that has made it so that I I don't want to be like that math teacher that I had <laughs> mm. I want to be the one who can make connections to everyday things awesome that's a great story I would have understood it if that was taught to me that way too uh, last question and this is a fun one. When you walk into a classroom, what's going to be a walk-in song? What's going to be my walk-in song? Yes. Mm. The only thing that comes to me is Mary J. Blige's Just Fine. It's going to be just fine. I, I, to me, teachers need so much encouragement. Oftentimes when people go in the classroom, they're just, they just hold their breath because they're waiting for somebody to beat them over the head, telling them what they're doing wrong. And I think to, that, you know, it's going to be just fine. If, if with my help together, we can put our heads together. We, it's going to be just fine. And it will indeed, it will be fine. As long as we just keep on trying our best and continue to grow in the process. Absolutely. Dr. Seda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, learned so much, and I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. I did. Thank you. And before we let you go, 
if you can let people know, number one, how to get a copy of this phenomenal book, Choosing to See, but then also how they can connect with you on social media and also your website. Yes. Okay. So I'm on LinkedIn and um, Twitter and Instagram. And my handle is at Pam Seda one at Pam Seda one. Um, you can get my book um, from any place that books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, even um, if you want to support your local bookstore, you can just ask them and give them the title and they can get it. Um, but if you want an autograph copy, you can get it from my website, pamsata.com, and I'll personally autograph it for you. Awesome. And thank you so much. And make sure y'all get a copy. This will be a great summer read going into the next school year. If you are a math teacher, even if you're not a math teacher, there's still some things in here that, that apply to all content areas. So yeah, I've had lots of people sure tell me that. This to your library. Yes, yes. Very, very accessible and applicable. But I know I've taken a lot of your time. And once again, I'm very appreciative. And I cannot wait to really dig into the book and, and just share more. Well, I look forward to it. And maybe we can have future conversations once you really get into the book. Absolutely. So wish you a good rest of the day and hopefully we'll connect again for another conversation. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, people. So we're about to end another fantastic episode of, of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk for numeral 4 educatorscom I'll say it one more time. identitytalk4educators.com Thank you and have a great day.